0: you have your handout today, we are in part three of our church study, just back to some basics of the church. And I want to encourage you to, if you've missed any of these, or um, wouldn't be bad to review the first couple online. You can go online to northsidebiblechurch.net slash listen or northsidebiblechurch.net and just hit, hit the listen tab at the top of the page. And our sermons that we've preached for the last few years are up there. I'd love for you to review the concept of the church because it is passionate within me and our church leadership that we uh, take our church and make it a culturally relevant church for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we've made a lot of efforts in that in our church. We we love um, loving on people, but I think we have a hard time... Uh, moving inside and outside of the walls of the church and there's a dvd uh, from the right now ministries that larry was uh, larry's going to talk about i think at the end of the service Um, that that's the group that we can all sign up for it's kind of like the netflix of christian stuff and um, there's a dvd i want to share with you just dealing with church and if god sent his son to the world to save the world and i want to talk to you today about what it means to compare or to deal with this concept of the world and the church. And I'm going to take you back historically into my mind (laughs) to some teaching I had that misled me for a number of years, a little bit self-revealing, I think, and uh, maybe you were in the same culture I was in. But a few weeks ago, I gave you some statistics that um, show how our church culture is far from God. Still a bit of a ring up here, Tyler, if you can hear that. Our church culture is far from God. We looked at a number of things In the study of um, the culture in that first sermon I did on the church um, about how far away the world is from biblical thinking, 4% of Americans think in terms of biblical worldview, 4%. 9% of Christians in America have a biblical worldview, uh, which means the culture has washed into even our Christianity, and we've so... Subdued the values of the Christian faith That it's washed itself out into our culture And it's a dangerous thing um, And so I, I grew up With some very confusing church issues um, that, that were part of my culture in the 70's I was a kid in the 60's and 70's And um, I had an older brother, Lynn My older brother, Lynn you, You've all met him I'm asking you to still continue Remember, pray for him He's uh, battling some cancer So I keep my little armband on but uh, he loved music, and uh, my parents loved music, but my brother, Lynn loved music, and I don't know if he ever counted them, but how many, and I would say probably thousands, of 45 LPs he owned. They were by the thousands in our home. Um, he just constantly was buying up music, and um, I know with iTunes and all that, now you guys just download, it you know, the 45 is, but anyway, he, some of you get that concept, but he had uh, just a love for music, and so I... I ...grew up listening to all kinds of contemporary music from the 60s. And then I was taught this when I went to church. And I went to a little elementary school that was a Christian school. And it was ultra-fundamental. And I was taught that the church and the Christians have three great enemies of our faith. There are three great enemies. You guys know these if you're part of the church. And the three great enemies of our faith are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, now the, the flesh part... I get that. That's me. I can be my own worst enemy, and I have been numbers of times my own worst enemy. And uh, I have fallen from God just based on my desires and my pull away from obeying Scripture. So, how many of you understand the flesh thing? It's easy, isn't it? (laughs) Flesh is is a complicated deal. The devil, but the devil is clearly an enemy of ours. The Bible speaks very clearly of that, even though when I read you the statistics about our culture, um, less than 40% of our culture believe ...in an actual real devil that's trying to destroy um, the lives of people and Christians. But the Bible speaks of the devil as one who roams about seeking whom he may destroy. So I always got that one. It was the world that was complicated to me. Um, Trying to figure out what this concept of the enemy is the world... ...and then living in the world... (laughs) got very confusing for me as a young person. And I would tell you, even through college, my Bible college training, I got a lot of great truths and training in Bible college. And even as a young youth pastor, that concept never locked in well with me. And I never totally understood it. So I want to take you to a couple of things. Like 1 John 2, if you'll turn there, 1 John two fifteen. There's a little phrase right at the top of the verse there. And it says, love not the world, neither the things in the world. And uh, I've memorized that verse as a kid. I've known it all my life in the King James. Love not the world, neither the things in the world. And so the world was this enemy that I couldn't love at all. And I was taught through all of that, through this uh, conservative church. I went to this church as a kid, very conservative, really great church. Not criticizing you guys at all, so please don't hear that. But I went to the ultra-fundamental elementary school uh, that was um, really strong. They had uh, haircut rules and Dress code rules that made you look in my head as a kid. Now I'm translating from my childhood days. That made you look and act and sound like Christians. Christians look and act and sound like this. And so there was a view to me of the world, all bad. And then the Christian, all good. Okay, short hair, long skirts, you know, no earrings, none of that stuff. So you you had all this... Material behavior and activities that related to, to your Christian life that said, I am not part of the world because the world is all bad, right? And so I got very confused by that. I was taught in that school that dancing was a sin. Uh, it's a sin of the world and that all music on the radio would cause you to dance if you listen to it. If you get hung up with worldly music, this is what my elementary school taught me, you're, you're going to get caught up in dancing, and dancing is sinful. And and as a kid, you know, I'm just swallowing all that down, going, oh my goodness. You know, my parents talk about when they used to go dancing. When they were, you know, younger, and, you know, when they first got married, they'd go to nightclubs here in town and dance. We have some old photos of them doing that. I'm like, oh my goodness. And my mom declares herself to be a Christian, you know. I'm like, how in the world? And so my brain was trying to wrestle with all this and, and trying to figure all that out many Christians have been raised with the concept that the world is all bad and we get in our head about this world that's our enemy and we sort of push back from it there's some extreme views that go with that they go way back by the way in our history the monks the early monks great reading if you like history by the way uh, were a group of people that just decided everything in the culture is driving me away from God um, all the, the flesh and the sinful temptations of this culture and this, this complicated life that I live in, is in 300 A.D., by the way, you know, the complicated life I live in. So what I'm going to do is just go live in the desert by myself. Just me and God in the desert. And I'm not even going to build myself a house. I'm not going to have a family. I'm not going to do anything but just exist in this quiet place in the wilderness, very meager, simple living, maybe eat once a day if, at the most, and I'm going to have a lot of time to commune with God. And so the, the monks began, eventually they became groups of them that would say, Hey, let's all get together and build one, you know, let's make one little row of vegetables that we can all eat. And uh, kind of pool our work. And so you end up with monasteries and cloisters of monks and all that kind of stuff. And eventually you get kind of a more liberal view of that. But the monks had that concept of just abandoning the world. And going away from everything that they lived around... Their culture and just getting into the wilderness in the desert, going to a quiet place and avoiding the world—that was what the monks did. The Amish that we know of today in our culture—they have a very similar vein of teaching. Matter of fact, Kendall, when I snuck in Wednesday night after we cut our cars out for the pine car derby coming up real soon with our uh, children's ministry, <clears throat> the Pioneer Clubs—we cut out our little wood cars—and uh, but we got our little cars cut out, and then I snuck into the Bible study, and here's Kendall teaching on. Uh, at the end of his teaching uh, that I caught, he's talking about the Anabaptists. And uh, they they were a separatist group that sort of began to believe we need to get away from everything in the world and we need to to separate and pull out. And and the Amish are offshoots of the Anabaptists who, who, who believe that the world is bad and all the things in the world are bad. The Amish of today have no electricity. Okay, now I say that and then I did a bunch of research on them I was going to be using an illustration. They do allow electricity to run around their fences to keep their cows in now. I don't know how they get away with that, but they're, that's one of the okay electricity moments that we can protect our, our cows from escaping because the electric fence helps. And so they got a little wire that runs around their farms. But that's the only electricity they use. And uh, they don't have it in their homes, and they sure don't have a way to hook up to... ...to communicate with radios and that kind of stuff... ...because they decided the influence of the world... ...into their families and their children... ...is devastating to them. And it destroys their values. And so the world, the great enemy of the world... Uh, ...is something they've pushed back from. And so the, the, the Anabaptists, really the Amish... Um, ...have this bit of music that's sanctioned by them. It's all they kids can listen to. They have books sanctioned by them... It's all the kids can listen to. They have clothing that the kids can wear. Sew your own, do your own thing. But this is all you can wear. You can't have anything else. And so they create this cloistered group that's separate from the world. And uh, you, you guys have seen some of those. So, but these groups, along with the many other of the fundamental evangelicals that I grew up under, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, began to use the concept of 1 John 2:15. Love not the world. They began to use it as a way to ban the things of the world from the church and from the people of the church. And they began to use it more like a, an instrument of law than grace. Uh, they began to use this scripture to say all the world is bad. Now you've heard Robert Davidson tell the story, and if you haven't, he would love to tell you this story because he loves telling stories. But you've heard him tell the story of a singer that came to his assembly at the high school at Viger in 1950 whatever that would have been. Remember the year by any chance? 56, 1956 when Robert was in high school and dinosaurs still roamed the earth. I always say that about him because it teases him. But a long time ago when a singer came to the chapel to, to their uh, assembly service. They gathered all the high school together and when the singer got there and started singing. They closed down the assembly and the teacher, the principal throws him out and stops in the assembly and sends the kids back. That singer was Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, okay, and uh, they weren 't about to let that 's from the '70s they weren 't about to let Elvis Presley at Viger high School they weren 't about to let him stand on stage and sing his rock and roll and gyrate with his guitar wasn 't going to happen now I want to tell you today the principals of Viger would love to have somebody like Elvis Presley do an assembly, and the kids like it because okay. it 's not even close to What it was. But but I remember the controversy surrounding this great iconic Elvis Presley. Elvis Aaron Presley. My mother was crazy about Elvis Presley. We have the album, still have a bunch of the albums, the Elvis Presley albums, and but he sang rock and roll, okay? Which I was taught in my ultra-fundamentalist teachings. Even the term rock and roll is a gutter term that has a lot of immoral connotations. You shouldn't even be listening to it. And then I would occasionally catch a song, because my brother loved music, I would occasionally catch a song, and he would sing, Love Me Tender, Love Me True. You know, and I'm going, well, oh, that didn't sound so bad. I mean, I really liked that song. You know, and then he would sing Suspicious Mind, and, and uh, oh, an American Trilogy. How I many any Elvis fans out there? Come on now, to be honest, don't be, boom, oh, oh, my man, that's right, we used to listen to Elvis all the time, didn't we? We used to sneak around to church and listen to it, because it was bad for us. But, <laughs> it's our rebellious years. But do you understand what I'm saying? You know, American Trilogy, is there a better Elvis deal when he does that live? You've got to look that up on YouTube, by the way. American Trilogy, when he just sings that whole deal with the band and the orchestra and all that. It's phenomenal. And I used to think, how is this bad? How did, how did this get to be bad? All the world is bad. All the church is good, was the concept. And I couldn't figure out how Elvis got in the bad list. Oh, and then he made this terrible deal of He made an album of all hymns. Remember that? I got it in my house. He made an album of all hymns. And he sings How Great They Are like nobody's business. And I mean, when you hear him sing How Great They Are, it's like, whoa, what a voice. You know, what a deal. And his roots are in that. He gets J.D. Sumner and the Stamps Quartet, you know, backing him up in a whole bunch of his Christian stuff and even in some of his other stuff. And I used to try to figure out, now, how does this work? My parents have a jukebox in our restaurant that plays... ...worldly music, you know, and we shouldn't be listening to it... ...but people put their, you know, quarter in and play two or three songs back then. And you go, wow, I'm confused about all this. And it got more and more confusing. I remember, you know, I remember trying to figure all this out. Uh, One of my early jobs in in college, um, I worked for a painter named Edgar Freeman... ...who graduated Bible college in the early 50s. So that dates him way back into some ultra-fundamental teachings... Now, he was, a paint, he, was a, he was a pastor who had a painting business, professional painting business on the side. And he'd hire Bible college kids to help us get through college. And we'd work for him in the afternoons when we were out of school and worked like a dog. He was a very hardworking man and uh, put me to shame most days in his older years. But, but Edgar Freeman would not allow you to work for him if you had a beard or even were unshaven. If I forgot to shave one day, I couldn't work for him that day. I'm pa- painting the outside of a house, not allowed to be there because my whiskers were showing. But, but he was ultra conservative, and he said, you know, it's just a sign of rebellion. That's all it is, a sign of rebellion. I go, well, you know, it's actually a sign that I couldn't get up in time to get shaved and get here on time. It's really what it's a sign of, but I'm not really rebelling against it. I really need the money, but, you know, son, you got to go home, you know, shave, and come back. Okay, you know. I mean, he was that kind of guy. You couldn't have hair over your ears. You know, which was never a problem for me, of course. <laughs> but you couldn't have hair over your ears. Guys, guys would, you know, say they'd come meet him to, to sign up and work with us and, and meet us at some house in the afternoon. He'd say, hey, I'll get to know you. And, you know, if you work okay for the afternoon, I'll let you come on tomorrow. Guy would drive up get out of his car with hair over his ears, you know, kind of longer hair. He'd go, you can just go back to your car, son. Not interested in you. Not unless you want to get your hair cut to work here. I got to get my hair cut to paint? Yes, you do. That was him because in his mind, it was a sign of rebellion. And it was part of the world's rebellion. Now, today, we have Phil Robertson, okay? And I didn't put his picture up there because I like Elvis. But we have Phil Robertson um, with Duck Dynasty, who has this massive scraggly beard and all his kinfolk, massive scraggly beard, and he is an icon legend of the Christian faith. By the way, I want to encourage you to pray for the Robertson family and for Phil because the high, you know, the higher that pedestal gets of them and their Christian. Faith inside the Hollywood community, the easier it's going to be for somebody to knock them off that pedestal. And we've got to be praying for them that their testimonial stand because they can fall, you know, all of them can fall. And uh, we don't want the enemy to not take them out. But Phil Robertson, you know, has this old... Build. He'll tell, it was rebellion that he had the beard. But now he's a symbol of our faith. So how does the world in the... It's very confusing. So today I want to take you to 1 John 2... And kind of sort some of this out with you, just for a few minutes. I want you to hear what the Apostle John says to his culture. If you have your physical Bible, highly recommend it, by the way. Turn to the book of 1 John, back of your Bible near Revelation. 1 John 2.15 says these words. Do not love the world, nor the things of the, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now I want to just read that again. I want you to let this sink in. Very, very important passage. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is no choice in this verse about one or the other. John says, if there's any love for you, and that's the word agape in the Greek, by the way. It's the strongest Greek word for love there is. has to do with intense, devoted, sacrificial love. If you love anything in the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. You don't get the choice of both. Verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does, not, does the will of, the, of God abides forever. So here's this short passage that's for years sort of confused me. And I want to just help you understand. The, the first verse, 2.15, is actually a voice of command in the Greek. It's very strong. Do not love the world. But there are three concepts of the world, W-R-L-D, in the Scriptures. And I want you to hear those three concepts. They're going to show up in your handout for you. I think I printed most of them out for you. The first one, when the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about the physical universe that God created. It's talking about all the... The amazing creation of God. And we're actually commanded in the Bible, by the way, to love that, to love the creation of God, to honor and look at the heavens and let them declare the glory of God and see the beauty of creation. And I'm telling you, I love being out in the woods. I love being, love being out in nature. I love seeing the beauty that God can create in the physical universe and giving him the glory for it. We are acceptable scripturally, according to the Psalms, we are to let our minds envision and see the wonders of His hands and bring glory to Him. So that world is okay. Then there's a second concept in the Scriptures about the meaning of the word world, that's the people who reside in the world. And clearly the Scriptures don't want us to not love the people who reside in the world. We're supposed to love the people. We're actually supposed to love our enemies Um, So we're supposed to love all the people of the world, so that can't be it. The third concept of Scripture, and this really helped me, by the way. I wish somebody would help me with this in high school. (laughs) Probably helped me have a little better witness in my high school days. Because I avoided my high school friends tremendously because of those passages of avoiding the world. And my high school friends were so caught up in the world that I stayed so far away from them I never had a good witness to them. ...in many, many ways. But the Apostle John is using this word in the third concept... ...which is the values and ethics and the system of thinking... ...of the fallen people of this world. We're all fallen man, And there's a system that goes with that. There's a concepts and values and principles and, and uh, ethics that go with that. And the Apostle Paul wants us to avoid those. And matter of fact, he makes it clear in verse 16. The lust and the pride that dominate the fallen world... Those are the things we're supposed to avoid. The lust and the pride. Now you look all through Scripture and you pick just about any sin there is and it's going to be tied to lust or pride. Almost every sin there is. A lot of people love to take this passage, 1 John 2, lust of the flesh, pride of life, and lust of the eyes and link it back to the original sin of Adam and Eve. And say Adam and Eve sinned in the garden based on these three sins right here. Lust of the flesh, Lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The fruit looked good. It tasted good. The flesh was lusting after it. And their pride was that they wanted to be like God. And so it fits real well that everything in our system of the world that's dangerous... ...gets summarized in this verse 16 where the Apostle John says... ...you need to avoid lust and pride of life that go with it. It's the impact of the culture and their values in the world that are the problem, and that's where we have to be strong. There was a dangerous church posturing that took place when I was a kid, and I'm trying to break that trend for all of us today. Um, we talked about this at breakfast, Kendall and I, one day, and I loved his terminology for it. But the, the posture that the church used to take is that all the world is bad, and all the church is good. And here's the problem. If you go into our current culture, if you go down to Sims, Walmart, Sarah Land, Walmart... And try to witness, based on that concept, all the world is bad and all the church is good. You're in deep trouble because all the church is not good. There's some unhealthy things in our church. And the same sinners that are in the world end up in our churches at times, including ourselves. We end up in the church struggling in conflict with each other and wrestling with things. There's no perfect church out there. Please don't ever think our church is even close to that. Okay, We're not a perfect church. We're just seeking to be more Christ-like every week that goes by. But all the world is not bad. You can listen to classical music and and uh a lot of the music I grew up listening to as a kid, you know, Love Me Tender, Love Me True is not a bad song. There's no sin in that song and it doesn't drive you to sin. You know, and every time Elvis dances on stage, it didn't make people dance and go do wrong things. Bible even commands or gives us uh pictures in the Old Testament of dancing before God. And I've been in church services where those kind of things broke out. And you saw the video from Angle Talk. That's one of their favorite ways to worship in, in Africa when I went to Uganda with them. That's one of their favorite things to do is just get in, a, they get in a big huddle. And somebody starts singing a song that's a bit of a chant. And then the next thing you know, everybody's dancing. You know. And I'm a Southern Baptist boy just patting my foot going, I don't know what to do with this. But that's cool, you know, cool. I'm not any good at it, but that's cool. And, but it was awesome to get to see, you know, that, that energy... ...lived out just like it's, it's talked about in the Scriptures and the Psalms. And there are churches today that, that include dance as part of their worship of the Lord. And I think it can be done worshipful. But the posturing that the world is all bad and the church is all good is very, very dangerous. So, how do we train ourselves to reach out to this world? You know, the video that we had at the beginning here said... ...in here, you know, is the good news and out there we're supposed to spread... The good news. But we've got to go into that culture that's dangerous and a culture that has ways of pulling us down. So let me give you four things as we close this morning. Just four simple things to remember so that our church, we we are not going to avoid the world as a church. We are not. I'm actually saying to our church family, I want you to help us figure out ways to get into the world. I want you to figure out ways to get into the world. ...the culture of the world and minister to them... ...and draw them to the truth. And to do that, these four biblical principles will help you... ...if you just lock them into your mind. The first one's found in John 17. Jesus has a prayer... ...that's prayed on one of the most significant nights of all of history. This is the night that Jesus has gone into the upper room with the disciples... ...had dinner with them... ...and explained to them he is going to die. He is going to go away for a while... And leave them, and, and, but he promises to come back. And then he, he leaves the upper room, walks out of the gates of the city, of, of the temple, or the gates of Jerusalem. Goes out of these massive gates, takes a, a hard right turn, and goes up this winding hill um, that's, that's part of the Garden of Gethsemane. And he steps over a little brook called the Kidron Brook, which is flowing dark red and dark brown from blood that is coming from the sacrifices in the temple, because the temple wall ran along this exact same creek, just up from where Jesus steps over it. And the temple wall has has drains that are draining the blood from the altars where people are bringing their lambs to sacrifice to God based on the Old Testament law, and it's, it's time of sacrifice. Jesus steps over the Kidron Brook, which means dark and bloody, and goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and there... He prays with his disciples, three of them go farther in with him, go to sleep while he's praying. And he prays so intensely that night that the Bible says angels had to come attend him. That's the night that this passage takes place. And this is a little tiny, tiny part of an hour, a couple of hours of Jesus' prayer. I want you to look at John chapter 17 and verse 13. Jesus praying to his Father in the garden, uh, blood on his face, from where he's sweating blood, he strained so hard. And here's some of his words, some very intense stuff. But now, uh, I come to thee, a- a- and these things I speak in the world, that they, he's talking about his disciples, may have my joy made full in them. That's Jesus' goal: is for his joy to be full in you. Then look what he says, verse 14: I have given them to thy word. I have given them by word. And the world has hated them. World and Christ. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. So even Jesus in his high priestly prayer says about his disciples, that's you and I. We aren't to be taken out of the world and separate ourselves. That whole monk an Amish thing is not the deal. What I want them to do is stay in the world but not be of the world. I want them to be in the world as an influence and not be influenced by the world. So Jesus is saying uh, in his prayer, verse 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. And then look at verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So as he's Praying for his disciples to be in the world, but not of the world he says and, and father you 're going to have to put the word on them because the word's what 's going to sanctify them it's what purifies us in the in the in the unpure world that we're to reach into and minister to. We have to have the Word of God reigning reigning into us. You need this passage to go into your head a lot that we are to be filled with joy we're to, we're, the world's going to be fraught with enemies, but then ultimately we 've got to understand that God sent us into that world of enemies to minister to them. And then the second thing I want you to keep in mind is Romans chapter 12. Another familiar passage to you. If you'll turn there with me. Just after the book of Acts. Romans chapter 12. Not only do we need to remember Jesus' prayer, we need to renew our minds. 12.1, Apostle Paul, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, how do I do that? And and as I'm doing that, am I supposed to just run away from the world? No. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Apostle Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world as you're in the world ministering, like the Apostle Paul is all the time. Don't be conformed to it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind in the Word. You put your mind into the Word and put the Word into your mind. And it transforms you so that while you're in the world, it cannot conform you to itself. That's what Paul's teaching us. Is that we cannot be in the world and absorbing the truth of the world if we don't have the mind of God in us to begin with. So we have to renew our minds. It's one of the things that the little Christian school I did, helped me do so much. They taught me so much scripture. I want to say to you, I know they were extreme and fundamentalist in that, and they pushed the boundaries out a little further than I think Scripture says, but it did teach me very clearly the mind of Christ in many things, and I I have a ton of Scripture memory I had from my childhood from them, so I'm very grateful for that training. So we remember Jesus' prayer that we're to be in the world, not of the world. Then we renew our minds because the Apostle Paul says, don't be trans-conformed, rather be transformed in the thinking of your mind. And then thirdly, I just want to encourage you to remain strong... in your thoughts of eternal values. The difference in... I think a cultural Christian, which is not a good thing... and a dedicated, devoted, Christ-like Christian... um, comes... if you go to Philippians... now let's do Colossians, I'd rather do Colossians... Um, let's do Colossians 3. The difference in a cultural Christian... And a Christ-like Christian has to do with the fact, a biblical Christian has to do with the fact of where your mind is actually set, um, where your mind is focused. Colossians 3, if therefore, uh, then you have been raised up with Christ, the whole first two chapters of Colossians about the fact that you were raised up with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now look at this. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, which is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. The the principle of this passage is set the affections of your mind and set the thoughts of your mind on heavenly things. Think about eternity have eternal thoughts. Think more about eternity than you think about here. When you find something you really like, So Ned and I love to watch uh, on TV sometimes these home, these log cabin homes. We had a friend in Birmingham that built this magnificent log cabin. home. I went over and helped him. They call it pitching logs. Wow. Talk about a workout. But these great big logs, you just keep stacking them up till you have a log cabin home. We love watching that channel. I mean, you can get really, you'll get some of those homes. They're fantastic. You know, you just sit there and go, oh, that would be awesome to live in a home with all that. You know, it's just so, ooh, it's good. But then I have to go, you know, Lord, and that is nothing, nothing compared to the home that I have in heaven. Nothing on earth can compare to what Christ has built for me in heaven. The eternal creator, carpenter of all times, Jesus Christ, told his disciples in John 14, just before he went to the garden, by the way, he said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. He's been building a place for me for years for me to live in, you think it might be a little better than that dinky little log cabin, you know, $800 million log cabin or whatever they are? You think Christ might have a little better hand on that? I guarantee you the place we're going to live in. And so what I've got to do to not get caught up in, oh, baby, we've got to sell everything and let's, you know, see if we can rent the kids off for, you know, the rest of their life and just, we've got to have one of those homes. Oh, we've got to have one. I've got to have one. Instead of getting caught up in the world and that stuff, you know, I've got to go, oh, Lord, man, that, that is beautiful. And, and if you ever just want to give me one, Lord, you know, if I just win one in the lottery or something, that'd be cool. You know, if it's somebody just hand me one, the keys to one, go ahead, it's all yours, that'd be great. Otherwise, we'll just live on 9550 Oak Forest Drive. Keep preaching and teaching the Word of God and look forward to the eternal things because my eternity is far more important than my earthly and that's what Colossians 3 is all about. Your eternity is so much more important and so much more valuable and so much more meaningful. So if you want to combat the world, if you want to be a Christian that can go into the world and not be of the world, you've got to have a, an other world mindset. You've got to think about heaven. Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says, we're citizens of heaven. You're not citizens of earth. Your citizenship isn't here. This is all temporary. Your eternal citizenship's already in heaven. So get your mind there, and then you can minister effectively here on earth. And then lastly, this is real important because it goes back to the passage in 1 John. I want you to go back there with me. John's full teaching of 1 John's magnificent. You should probably do a Sunday school study on that sometime or a small group time. But you know, in chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world nor the things of the world. I want you to look at chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 and verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. You're already victorious in the church versus the world conflict. You're already victorious if Christ dwells in you because He's overcome the things of the world if you'll just follow Him. If you'll follow Him... You've overcome the world, and the world cannot overcome you. You're already a victor, victor in that. I want you to look at chapter 5, 1 John 5. We'll just start at verse 1. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whosoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Your faith in Jesus Christ makes you victorious over the things of the world if you hold the line. If you hold the line. Now... You can't have wavering faith. You can't go out into the world and say, "Hey, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God." And then somebody say, "Well, I don't believe that." And you go, "Well, I'm not sure I believe either because I don't I don't want to be I, I'd like to be liked by you, and I don't want you to insult me or anything." So, we'll just be friends, and I'll say, "I'm not sure anymore." You got to hold the line. That's not victorious. The victorious is to say, "Well, I do believe, and I'd love to show you why I believe." You know, and if I can't figure it all out, you're going to have questions. People have questions about the Bible I can't even answer, but I can go look them up or I can talk to you know, Kendall or somebody smart, and they'll help me figure it out. You know, Cody loves that kind of stuff. You get somebody asking you about creationism and, you know, evolution and all that, man, sit Cody on them. Go, Cody, go, just take them to town, man, just wear them out. You know, Cody loves that stuff. You don't have to memorize all that stuff, but you've got to have a firm grasp of your faith that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He died on the cross, saved me from my sins. I have no other name under heaven whereby I can be saved but Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? So we've got to be able to stand. We have to overcome the world by our faith. And I want to say to you, it's going to sound familiar, we have to risk our faith into everyday world events. Caleb texted, I guess, me and Josh and our family. Uh, he was downtown because he works downtown. and he was at some, They were having the art show down there. and He was talking about the atheist booth or whatever was set up down there and just how odd of weird people they were. And I thought, you know, there's a moment. And Kendall loves going down there and mixing and mingling with those folks. There's some odd people down there. But you know what? Our faith ought to be in the midst of that. You know, we I was thinking, man, I wish we our north side table was right next to the atheist table. Say, so, hey, good to meet you. Glad you're here. You got a chair? We, you can borrow our chair. You want some of our food? We brought food for everybody. You can have some. Wouldn't you love just to love on a weird atheist for once and not make them feel odd, but say, man, we're just here to share Jesus' love. Oh, wouldn't that be great? I get so frustrated sometimes, the Unitarian church up here by the. By the college, the signs they put out there in front of them, you know, one of them said, uh, we welcome uh, gays and lesbians. I thought, well, so do we, you know. We just don't have a sign out front that says it, but we could. We welcome sinners. Everybody in this building's a sinner. Every single one of us is a sinner, right? So inside the church, it said that in the video, and I wanted to highlight it for you, but I didn't. It says in the video, inside the church, we receive training, training to go out into the world and and. Preach the gospel and preserve the truth. That's what we're trained to do. That's part of what this morning is. I gave you four things at the end of the service, four verses, that you can lock into your brain and say, this is my training so that I can go into the world and overcome the world. I can speak the truth into the world with with overcoming power. I'm a victor. The world can't overcome me. And somebody can ask you a question that can insult you. And, you know, in front of their friends, maybe it's all funny. But in the end of the day, the Bible says one day every knee is going to bow. Every knee is going to bow before Jesus. So you'll do it willingly. You just want everybody else to be with you willingly. We've got to stand on our faith. So we overcome the world by our faith, risking our faith in everyday world events. Let's bow our heads together. A couple of announcements before we close, and I'm going to have some members join. Father, I love you today. I thank you for the grace that is here among us. Um, Lord, I, I thank you that I'm growing in my understanding of how to reach the world. And uh, I don't want us to be afraid of the things of the world because we've overcome the world. We need to be guarded and protected. So I ask your Holy Spirit to protect us where we need to be protected. But also ask you to help us be wise and speak into the world with intellectual truth. To be understanding of our own faith and our own values. And to be able to speak in a way that's that's able to connect them to the cult, their culture to your truth. God, I pray you'd help us be like the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 when he stood with the Athenians that were idolaters. Our world is filled with idolatry and surely you can help us find a way to use the, the concepts of this culture to bridge to the truths of the word. So I pray our people, I pray my church family right here today would always be looking for angles and opportunities and divine appointments to bridge into our culture. We'll trust you to help us do that. Help our church services to do that as well. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen.